high stress, long hours. Um, I mean, I I don't know anybody who works as hard as people in the performing arts, really. It's where everybody is on call all the time. I mean, I could call anybody in my team at 2am, they would answer the phone. I mean, it's there's no nine to five. You can't be that sort of person and do well in the arts. Um, and... And yeah, absolutely the stress because because people are paying for an experience mm. and it's ephemeral. So it's not like, oh, I bought a packet of Tim Tams, I took it took it home and I didn't like them and I can go back to the shop and get another one. It's gone. Mm. The, the experience is gone. So it has to be right on the night. <laughs> and that kind of stress... Um, is very hard to handle over a long period of time. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Yamila Alfonsetti. How do you innovate and reinvigorate an opera company in the era of short attention spans, The Bachelor and Everyone Wants to Be Famous talent shows? That is just the burning deck and challenging situation Yamila was faced with when she recently took on the role as Executive Director of State Opera South Australia. If you think a podcast about opera sounds boring, then think again. Today's show is anything but boring with insight flying a mile a minute. From Yamla's youth playing six instruments and sneaking into the Sydney Opera House and intermission at a time at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music to insights into what makes good culture, innovation and taking the opera to the people how the arts in Australia is quite different to many other parts of the world and has a long way to go to engage new audiences and to become a habitual part of life. And perhaps no matter how much things change, they perhaps stay the same. We discuss how to enjoy opera and hear about state opera, South Australia's latest, The Merry Widow, directed by Graham Murphy, and Yamila's focus on building a strong team to drive forward. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. Thank you, Yamala, for joining us today. Now, I'm going to start off like I do with all of these interviews except the first couple. What were you like as a young girl? It's a bit of a curveball question. That you is can... a curveball question. <laughs> Um, well, hello. Thank you for having me. That's okay. Um, this is fun. We're going to go on a wonderful journey and there's lots of things <laughs> I want to sort of ask you and we'll see how it goes. I, I was, when I first started doing these interviews, had a really nice set series of questions, but now I'm kind of going, oh, we'll, we'll see how it rolls. Where it goes. Yeah. Well, look, I had, um, yes, that, that is an interesting question. I'd forgo- I've forgotten what it was like to be a young girl. <laughs> I feel like I've been old forever. Um, I, look, I'm someone who had... A fantastic childhood. I I was a very very lucky person. Um, I'm the eldest of six uh, wow. siblings, 
and my mother uh, had me when she was 19. So my mum and I are 19 years apart and therefore we're incredibly close. And um, we, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, which is west of Sydney, two hours west of Sydney, and we had this fantastic childhood where we uh, played outside a lot, you know, the sort of thing that every parent today, and I know a lot of them, laments. Um, we all, you know, reminisce about when we used to ride bikes up and down the streets. It, it's it's quite bizarre because um, I think it's absolutely true when you read that our generation, I'm in my mid-40s, mm. We are way more like our parents than we are our children. And the biggest, one of the biggest social and psychological gaps ever in the history of humankind has happened now between us and our children. Mm. Their lives are so remarkably different. In fact, and see, our childhoods were very much like our parents. We played outside, mm-hmm. we walked to school, we took, we we didn't touch type or yeah. code or have the internet. And parents everywhere see this now with all the problems that we have with our children. Yeah. They're so what vastly different. What did you get out different. of that? So, you, so riding your bike and all of the and things playing you outside. Playing. Well, so, what well, did you get? Out of, what do you think on reflection? Well, it's hard when you're a child to go. What you get out of that? You're probably thinking you. Parents are just kicking you outside. To play. <laughs> but what, what do you think you got well, out we, of that? We had, um, we developed, and I think like a lot of people I know who've end, ended up in the creative industries, we developed huge imaginations. And my, I was very lucky that my parents, uh, whilst not being personally artistic, you know, they didn't personally paint or um, or play instruments or whatever, they are still today such huge believers in the arts. So I had this... And was that a conversation they had when you were younger? You knew they were... Oh, absolutely, without without doubt. So we we did not have a wealthy... uh, Because I was one of six kids. We we weren't well off. We lived in the Blue (laughs) Mountains. But if I asked my parents if I could learn an instrument, try my hand at something, have a go at drama class go to dance class, the answer was always yes. When it came to art and art making, um, the answer was always yes. My parents used to drive all of us to music lessons. I would go to Sydney to see concerts at the Opera House with my dad when we were young. And um, it, it really, it made us feel like anything within the arts was accessible to us. I mean, I, I learnt half a dozen instruments. We could all read music before we went to school. Um, my sisters were doing dance classes. My brother was playing the clarinet. You know, it was all about that. My um, my father now, in fact, he's retired and he's a very, very um, accomplished sculptor. So he walked away from being an architect and decided to be a sculptor. And my parents really had this thing of um, you can do anything at any time of your life. My mum is this amazing woman. She was a stay-at-home mum, you know, the, the, the dream of everyone's life now, if only to have a stay-at-home mum. 
Um, and when she turned 40, she decided to get a degree. She now has a PhD. She runs huge departments at multiple universities. She gives papers overseas, mm. um, travels the world as an academic, a mm. high-level academic. But she only did her first degree when she was 40. When she was 40. Yeah, so I always – I just look at her and I just think this is – this is the thing. This She's is, probably a bit busy with six kids. That's right. But, and, and this is the thing that is levelled at women all the time. Mm. Yes, you can you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. And there's plenty of women that hate that and there's plenty of women that believe it. Mm. Um, I'm not which not sure which side of the camp I mm. fall on. But, no, I had, I had an amazing childhood which basically made me think that um, – I could do anything. Did really? You say you played six instruments. Oh that? yeah, I mean we could all so play. So we could all play anything. So what, what did you play? Just oh well, I I started off with piano. I did classical guitar. I did recorder. I did oboe. I played baroque flute for some years. And then even when I went to the conservatorium, I mean one of my problems, I would say. Um, when I was at the Conservatorium of Music, I went there for high school. So I moved to Sydney for high school and then I went to the Conservatorium for my tertiary studies as well, is that um, I was exactly what they didn't... I was exactly what didn't work well there, which was I was a jack of all trades yeah. and master of none. And the thing is, to be a brilliant musician, to be a brilliant performer, you can't be a jack of all trades. You need to lock yourself in a room for 10 hours a day and practice that one damn instrument. Mm, not six. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So so I was never going to succeed as being a performer. And, you know, my my lifelong dream, I'm, I'm a big believer in the afterlife, and I will come back as an orchestral musician one mm. day. If I could live my life again, that is, that is the only thing I would do differently. I would pick one thing and just do that. Whereas I sort of did a lot of everything. Um, but I was, I, I do think I was smart enough to do a Bachelor of Musicology mm. when I was, when I was um, doing my tertiary studies. And um, yeah, that, you know, even that's kind of bizarre. Mm. I, I wasn't really going to land a job after that. But I'm a big believer in um, jumping in with both feet, yeah. putting your hand up for everything, getting involved, and then sort of work took off after that. What, what did you have a? I'm assuming you had a very musical house of your other siblings oh, played music and super musical. Yeah. It, so that all was, the I'm time. assuming that was, means that was very normal. So you played six instruments. And it was your heaven. Other siblings played instruments. It, and it was absolutely heaven. It was. It, there was music happening all the time. My parents loved it. They encouraged it. Um, I think at one stage even my mum started learning the cello. My dad was, you know, my dad used to sing in a choir um, sort of informally, you know, um, at amateur in an amateur choir. And um, it really... It, more. Look, it, I don't think it was specifically, though, about art and art making. I really think it was about just this concept of uh, you can do anything, why wouldn't you? Mm. Why, why, why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you do that? There was never, and I, I would say my siblings all agree with me, there never ever um, was this question of sort of oh, well, I couldn't possibly do that as a career or I, I couldn't mm -hmm. possibly go and live in Europe. I mean, I've had lots of my siblings have lived in various places all over the world. Mm. I, um, um, some of them do still live overseas now. 
And it, it really was, um, and, and we still have that in my family today. My siblings, my parents do all sorts of different things. I have a sister who's very, um, very well-known senior in the advertising world. She's yeah, okay. a TV producer, uh, massive brands make makes. Is that ads. about searching? Because some, some of the interviews we've had about, it's about, because we've asked people about like having a successful life and what does that mean? And is that about seeking opportunities and sort of not, not, not procrastinating and not just going, oh, no, I, I couldn't. It's actually about just taking... Taking them by the horn and just, just well, and it's the thing that like if I, if I if I sat around with my family, I mean I sat around with my family at Christmas hmm. last year and I said, eh, guess what? I think I'm going to take a job in Adelaide. You know, and everyone went, oh yeah, great. Nobody yeah. said, oh gee, that's a big move, or yeah. oh, do you know, do you think you can do it? Everyone went, yeah, sounds fun. Yeah. Go for it. No one was surprised when so you know. Just a different thing to try. Yeah. It is, and and I try and do that with um in my family now with my daughters. My daughters say things like, "Oh, I think I'll go travelling here," or you know, my daughter who's twenty will ring me. She's been in Paris for six months, and she'll say, "Oh, I'm going to go to Morocco for a month." And I go, "Great, no, fantastic." Why would I balk? Mm-hmm. Why would I blink? The world is your oyster. So why does it sort of? Why, why does that mentality matter to you? Like it was obviously nurtured to you as a child. That that um, that mentality of seeking opportunities. What like what? What do you? Well, I think you know. I mean, I'm not sure if it's I'm obviously normalised in your family. Yes, really, it's normalised, it? so... and I think you know. Unfortunately, today, I mean, you know, maybe it's just because I'm 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 tired, and it's the end of the year. But there's a lot of negativity, a lot of people, and, and, you know, I succumb to this as well, a lot of things in life are hard, a lot of things feel like a leap, a lot of things feel too difficult, Um, the news is always bad, the economy's up shit creek, Mm -hmm. what can I say? And to succeed at something, you 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 do need a foundation which says, Yes, I can, because actually the entire world is saying, no, you can't, every day, mm-hmm. in every way, and it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a normal workplace and your boss is saying, oh, we're going to miss the deadline. It doesn't matter if you're presenting to a board and they say, and believe you me, I've actually had this this week, not with my board, but with, um, you know, with uh, other other major groups who say, you're too ambitious. You won't do it. It can't work. And that actually is our whole life at the moment. Mm. And by Christ, it's hard. So what do you have to counteract that? Mm. Unless you have, um, you need a great support person. You need a partner propping you up every day. Mm. You need a mentor. And if you don't have everything in place, it's damn hard Mm. to kind of say, I'll try again, yeah. try again, keep going. And so I'm very lucky that I have got this constant foundation of a, a rock-solid family and an amazing partner and who um, just go, yeah, well, why, why wouldn't you be able to do that? Yeah, They'd, yeah. They would be shocked. No one in my family would ever say, oh, God, I, I think that's reaching a bit too far. No one Ever. Yeah. So I love it. That's yeah. what I love about and, and it. And obviously your career has been in music and now it's obviously with opera. Mm. What, a really simple question, probably has got a big answer. What, why does why does music matter? So like probably picking like from a classical music side, but why, why does, let's start, let's start off, why does music matter? 
Well, this I'm is sure an interesting... You, I would have thought of something you've thought about It before, is something so. I've thought about, not too much, I, I have to say. And, you know, this is an interesting question and it comes up a lot. I, prom- I promise you this isn't the first time I've heard this <laughs> question. And I, I'm not sure... This is, this is going to sound terrible. Um, music matters to me because I need it. I need it in my life and I like it. But, you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks that everyone should lo- want what I want and like what I like. And to be totally honest, I mean, I don't really know that it does matter. I mean, I spend a lot of my time... Um, in every job that I've had, reminding my staff that nobody died because the music didn't get on the music stand in time. Nobody died because the tickets weren't the right price for that concert. We're not saving lives in a major hospital. So really, music, it's a pleasure, it's a privilege, it's an honour for me. I personally need classical music in my life. I unequivocally, my life would be nothing. I'd be a broken person mm. without music. But that's me. Yeah. And you know, if you read, well, what, so what do you? There's like, a lot of hokey. But I was going to say, there's a lot of hokey but true things that come out of America. And one of them is, um, you know, this woman named Gretchen Rubin, who's mm. written all these books about happiness and the Happiness Project. And she reminds people that, um, you know, one of the one of the kind of um, truisms of adulthood that we should all remember is that what's right for me isn't right for you. Mm-hmm. And I remind myself, which is one of these Gretchen Rubin mantras, which is just be who you are. Um, so I, I don't actually think... I don't actually think that everybody should love classical music. I don't think that yeah. everybody needs it. We've done it. a fair bit of arts work and sort of, I mm. guess it's always interesting when you talk to people who might you know, love symphony orchestra or, or classical music. I or, love it. Or mm. love the opera or love, oh, yeah. um, or, or love the theatre and, and then they can describe what they love about it that someone else who's just like hasn't been or, or just maybe even has mm. an assumption I wouldn't actually like it. So mm. what, 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 do you, what, what do you like about going into a, like say the this, it could be anywhere, really. But mm. like to say mm. going to see an, 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 orchestra, an orchestral orchestra. concert or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what do you what do you get out? And of? look, I should qualify what I was just saying, which is that um, whilst I don't actually think that um, classical music or opera or whatever is more special than anything else, and everyone should have it, and everyone should like what I like, I am a huge believer in everyone having the opportunity to experience it. Yeah, where I have the issue is with people who are denied an opportunity. That is incredibly important once the opportunity is there. So people who would like to go but they can't get access. or haven't had the opportunity. Yeah, it's never been offered to them. It's never been accessible. There are so many barriers to participation. So what would you say? So what's... Do you get mood when you're sort of sitting there? Is it? Is it the? Oh, like, for me, yeah, I I have a special, um, and I know I know this about myself, which is why um, I love classical music more than anything. Um, I have a little kind of space that I go to in my mind. Um, I let myself go. 
It is the only time in my life where I feel totally, I kind of go into quite a sort of deep meditative state when I'm at a concert. So I don't do this thing where I um, try and remember what's going on or listen carefully to the motifs and the themes and make sure that I'm thinking about Shostakovich when it's Shostakovich. I let my mind wander and I find that um, when you give people permission to actually let their brain relax in a concert, they suddenly realise that it's one of the few places in life that you can hide. Mm. Uh, Really, no one can talk to you, no one can ring you, no one can get at you. I, my favourite thing is to go to concerts on my own. It's like my private place. You know, and you're in the foyer doing all the darling, darling, kiss, kiss, hello, nice to see you. You get in that concert and you basically blank. You just, and and then the thing that I love is my mind just wanders far and wide. And it's it's like the thing that people say, you know, they have the best ideas when when they're in the shower. When you You've got to find a way to relax your brain. And for me, that's concerts. Mm-hmm. That's why I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do think people, a lot of people feel stressed about going to concerts. It, it feels complex and difficult. And I really wish, if there was one thing, I wish I, wish I could give people permission to relax at a concert. You don't have to think about anything. You don't have to remember the second movement. Don't remember the composer. Don't remember the name of the piece. Who damn well cares? Just let it go. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, okay. That's my thing. <laughs> yeah. And and you, you talked about. I uh, say so you, you've worked with um, youth symphony orchestras mm. and that, what like what, what's that like? When well, you... it's fascinating, you know, because I've. I mean, I've been. God, I've been so lucky in my working life. I've had some amazing jobs, all just by by kind of miraculous sets of circumstances, really. Um, so, you know, I went from being the head of classical music for seven years at Sydney Opera House, which was all about excellence and being the best of the best and bringing, bringing out artists who had never been here before and, you know, money and tickets and high level. And then I went to being the CEO of Sydney Youth Orchestras. And I am, I'm, uh, for my sins, I am a sucker for a company in distress. You know, I, I love to feel like I'm going where I can roll up my sleeves and do good work. I'm sadly a workaholic, um, so it sort of suits my personality mm-hmm. to um, get too deep into work. But I just sort of, I just don't want to wake up and feel like I wasted my time mm-hmm. or, you know. Um, and and that go, gives that opportunity to... Oh, to, to do something. And you wanna, and, yeah, well, you want to do something. I mean, the mm. last thing I want to do is sit at my job and look at the clock and go, oh, it's only three o'clock in the afternoon. Being told don't break it, it's oh, fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I'd never take a job like that. But, yeah, so the change, it was such a huge change to go from somewhere like the Sydney Opera House to Sydney Youth Orchestras. Um, and one of the things that I learnt is that I thought I was obsessed with excellence. And a lot of people in the arts talk about excellence, you know. Um, You'll hear it all the time, excellence and innovation and all this sort of stuff. And you go somewhere like Sydney Sydney Youth Orchestras, big 12 orchestras, thousands of young people. And, of course, it's not about all about excellence. What it's about is participation. 
And it changed my mind about the value of the arts. And I realised why it's great to play a team sport and why it's great to be in a community Mm. and why it's similarly great to be in an orchestra. It's about being connected. It's about finding your tribe. It's like it's like anything in life where you are in that flow and people around you love the same thing that you love and all of this. So I realised a whole other side of the arts mm. and how valuable that is. And, um, look, that is something that I believe in wholeheartedly and I would like, if I can to imbue a little bit of in the opera because, you know, sadly opera over hundreds of years Mm. has become wrongly, really wrongly, it's become perceived as elite and specialised and niche and high art and where is the participation in Mm. this? Mm. And... So it's not seen. It's been seen as being exclusive rather than inclusive. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, um, I now know. I personally know the value of this participatory experience. Mm. Um, and you know, I've been. I've seen. This was one of the greatest privileges of being somewhere like Sydney Youth Orchestras, and you know, mess of an. But I'm assuming sort of there's some high achieving young people. Oh look, and, and things like that. Absolutely, sort of absolutely. That. But the fascinating thing is because, oh look, all like young virtuosi, you know, mm. brilliant twelve year olds that you would hear on stage and you'd go, oh, "That's the next Richard Tognetti," mm. you know. But if you talk to the child what they love about it, the, when the lights go on for them, they're not saying to you, oh, well, well, you know, I'm 12 and I want to be a star. They're saying, I made all these friends. I met people who like Brahms. Yeah, okay. I met my That's what they're saying. So they've always loved and they've finally found somebody that's exactly. And, and it actually, you know, it, it reminded me, my, my three years at Sydney Youth Orchestras reminded me how I felt when I went to the Conservatorium High School. Mm. I got to the Conservatorium High School and I went, wow, like people talk about Beethoven at recess. People go to concerts at the Opera House. Me and my best friend, my my best friend all through high school is a guy named Nick Deutsch. He's now the artistic director of the Australian National Academy of Music and he's also the head of the woodwind department at the Leipzig Hochschule, the Conservatorium in Leipzig. And he and I... About five nights a week, we'd sneak down to the opera house. We'd miss the first half of the concert. We couldn't buy tickets. We were like 15. We'd look at the TVs in the foyers. We'd work out which seats were empty. And then straight after interval, we'd go into a seat. And five nights a week, we were at concerts at the opera house. We saw everything. And, of course, the... Again, but obviously you loved it, and you, you must oh, have had friends who. We all you, did. Would you would you tell all your friends that that's what you do? Oh yeah. well, when I was at the Conservatorium oh, so High School, yeah, yeah. we were all doing it. Yeah. We were mad for it. We couldn't get enough of it. All we talked, we used to sit at, sit around at lunch having arguments about, you know, Mahler versus Wagner. I mean, it was amazing, and but. But it, again, it doesn't matter that it's classical music. That's just the construct. That's just the device. Mm. What matters is people finding their tribe. Mm. 
So it could be the same as it could be a bunch anything. of young kids liking footy or absolutely or netball or that's gaming or whatever it might that's be. Yeah. And and look, that's why I feel like I'm lucky. I I still work in something where it is possible for people to find their tribe. People find their tribe in opera, mm. but ultimately it doesn't matter that it's opera. You know, mm-hmm. um, for me, it's golden. It's really golden. Mm. And I, I floored you, haven't I? No, 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 no. <laughs> but I find it's like, the, the, and I guess, uh, I guess I'm interested with it, that the, the symphony orchestra. So you've got the kid, the, the, the mm. children who are obviously got a talent and mm. and love their classical music, and they've finally found, as you said, their, their, their tribe. And I'm not, I'm not, yeah. There's, there's others who who like this as well, and but they're maybe not overthinking it. They've got that childlike mind still. That's and right. They're, they're passionate about that. That's they right. Care, and they probably like in, in these interviews. Like we've got successful people we've spoken to, but mm. many of them felt quite awkward as children. So, mm. so they're awkward children, um, and, and then finding people that that are in their tribe, and mm. I have that sense that then there's this gap of people who who move away from mm. going to symphony mm. orchestras and concerts, yep. um, or the opera until mm. they're. Much Even older, post forty <laughs> or post fifty, oh, pensioners. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, right. That's, so yeah. It's a like, pity, isn't it? It's a real well, why, pity. Why do you think that happens? That people get to sort of be well, busy, or is it is it just? Well, I I think um, you know, I think the mistake for all of us is to think that this problem is a simple problem mm. that can be. And and a lot of people have asked me. Politicians have have asked me. Um, don- so how do we get more young people? To yeah, come to donors. The yeah. Donors ask me all the time, and unfortunately. You know, like everything in life, it is a multi-layered, complex problem. So you can never think that removing one barrier will fix it. So some people will talk about the tyranny of distance. You know, oh, there's regional kids who'll never see an opera. If you bring them to the city, there's another barrier. The Mm. barrier is so there's distance, there's money, there's time. There's a personal um, inhibition where people feel uncomfortable in the theatre, no matter what it is, and it is it is the hardest problem because what happens is you rem- it's sort of it's like a multi-headed snake. Mm. You remove one barrier and another barrier appears. Nobody, and I, I'm serious. I don't think any arts company in Australia has has is able to fix this problem yet because. No one's consistent mm-hmm. at it. No one is willing to commit to remove every possible barrier every year. And and I'm sympathetic to that because I've been in arts companies like this, you know, and one year you'll have an amazing CEO and a great board who says, yes, we want 30,000 kids to see children's theatre this year. And, of course... That just lasts for a year, mm, and the next okay. year, oh, we so lost. Come up with some strategies in place, and then it just fades away. That's right. It is so hard. It's so so hard. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And by God, I'm trying. But um, look, I, I had I had this conversation very recently with someone who was talking about making tickets cheaper. Mm. And the interesting thing that you find is, even if you make tickets free. People don't. The people who aren't coming mm. don't come, and they found this. This has actually been proven in studies, where you know in Sydney you put on opera in the Domain, which they did every year. All those people who go to opera in the Domain for free, 
who love it don't then buy tickets to the opera. People who wouldn't go to the opera go to go to an arts performance anyway. Don't go to opera in the domain. It's it is such a complex mm-hmm. beast. Um, but it's a good point. Even if you offered free tickets, you still wouldn't get people. Coming. This is yeah. this is what happened. People say this all the time. They say just make the tickets free or just yeah. make them cheap. It doesn't fix the problem. There is it a cultural one. One of the things that's been interesting in the couple of interviews we've done in relation to the arts is 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 it a cultural issue that in Australia we we mm. love sport we don't kind of get the arts. Mm. Yeah. Look. Look. I think. I think Australia um, has. You know, it has a very long way to go. We're 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 um, culturally bereft in many ways, mm. and I know this from talking to many of my friends who live in Europe and in Germany. Um, one of my, my very good friend who lives in Germany tells me that um, you know this is the difference between opera here and opera in Germany. In Germany, because obviously there's a massive government subsidy. Tickets are incredibly affordable, and the companies operate differently. They they present repertoire. Um, it, it's called they 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 perform in rep. So on every night, there's kind of a different opera. Mm. Um, and what happens in that culture is going to something like the opera or the symphony becomes a discretionary spend. It's it's a bit like if we were going to go to the movies, we could decide to go to the movies. You could text a friend on Friday afternoon and say, hey, do you want to go to the movies tonight? And it's 17 bucks or whatever, and you would. That's what happens with opera and orchestral music in Germany. Here, going to the opera, like people have to plan it two months in advance and they have to work out who's going to book the tickets and how will they save for the tickets and where are you going to park and and every step of the way is so hard mm. and oh we can go on a saturday night but there's no show on that saturday night i mean it's bloody ridiculous mm-hmm. i mean one of the big problems is that sort of like so is that frequency of shows and yep and, look and frequency being... see even frequency is another barrier because the night you want to go to something there's nothing on i mean i used to say this in sydney all the time I actually program um, the recital and chamber music for Sydney Opera House still. I have an ongoing contract. Thank you, Government of South Australia, that still (laughs) lets me do that. Um, That was one of the hoops to jump through that I had to jump through. And one of the things I always say at the Opera House is, where's the consistency? You know, there's nothing... It's not like you could actually say... Well, there's something on every Sunday afternoon. I always know there's a so concert. In your mind, it's, in, in your mind, someone would know that every Sunday afternoon there's going to be something on. So if I just rock up, yeah, there'll be something yeah. on. Okay, yeah. and and that doesn't happen in Australia. Yeah, wow. It literally doesn't happen. It, it, I, I mean, maybe it does happen somewhere, but I'm yet to hear about it. So there's so there's already we've touched on half a dozen barriers. Mm. What a hard gig to remove all of them. That's right. And even then, after you've removed all of them, then we have to do what we all know, which is work on the young people and give them an experience that they can relate to. Um, and, you know, Stuart Maunder, my artistic director, my co-director at the Opera Company, he always says that, and I, he's absolutely right, there is an opera for everybody because there are like thousands of operas in the repertoire, thousands. Um, there is an opera for everyone. If you say you don't like opera, 
you just haven't seen the one that that suits you yet mm. because some people like comedy some people like things that are heavier some people like things that are lighter some people want a complex plot some people don't mm. i mean it really it really is just a case of getting through the rep and if you don't have that opportunity well you've missed it you're yeah. never going to get it you know yeah. um if you miss it when you're young so explain opera to, like we we did some work for opera south australia in mm. the last year started this year or end of last year in particular um and it was interesting we had we had we had one young one young guy in particular who just loved the opera and his grandmother had brought him along and he would have been mid-20s, very, I think he might have been from a, a Greek background and very well-dressed and he doesn't take his friends, he probably doesn't even tell his friends he goes, yeah. but he, he <laughs> loves it himself. And others who went to the opera, they were quite passionate about it. But I think I get that sense that sort of for others there's sort of, there's um, sort of mental sort of, I guess, um, acceptance of different forms of the art. This might be visual art they can kind of get and then there's probably maybe theatre I can kind of get and maybe mm. symphony I can kind of get mm. and then opera to me is that sense that it's, it's oh, further yeah. away. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but, opera. but, but what, what, how, would you, how could you demystify opera? Well, well, look, you know, I, fi- I'm, I find opera difficult as well. I'm, I didn't grow up with opera. I grew up with a lot of classical music. So um, one of the things that actually was a big um, carrot about taking on this role was having an opportunity to really learn about opera. That's something that I'm mm-hmm. I'm dying to get into knowing this repertoire. Um, I know that I love a lot of opera, but I don't know a lot about it. But one of the things that I say to people, and I've been talking to some school groups and groups of young kids, um, I get kids to tell me something that they like doing. And you it's quite fascinating because you'll get some gorgeous young girl who says, well, I like going to ballet. And I go, yep, ballet and opera. Mm. There's dance in opera. And you get some kid who says, I like drawing. And I go, yep, design. Design is in opera. You don't. And you can touch on almost anything. You'll get some kids that say, oh, I don't know, um, I like, you know, I like dress-ups, I like I like singing, I like dancing, I like playing with my friends, I like making up stories. And I keep reminding them, it's all there. It's all in opera, the most complex of art forms because it's every art form mashed together. Mm. Um, but look, I, I mean, again, though, the interesting thing is a lot of people they carry a worry about opera. You know, I talk to a lot of people like, oh, you know, woe is the future of opera, what's going to happen? And and people say this about orchestral music. Mm. And I remind people that sometime in the early 1800s, Brahms wrote a letter. Brahms went to a concert of one of his symphonies and he wrote a letter to his friend saying... I'm so worried about the future of classical music. I looked around the audience and everyone had grey hair. And, you know, he wrote that hundreds of years ago and it's the same today and we're still here. I mean, I I just, I just think in 250 years we'll still be here mm. and people will still be saying, oh, only old people go to orchestral concerts. It's like, yep, that's what it is, you know. Well, like that way. That, that young bloke who was in the group, he was certainly... Yeah, yeah, yeah. and people people feel stressed about it, but I sort of think, 
yeah, people have been stressed about it since like 1700. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. And people still go to orchestral yeah. concerts um, and op- people still go to opera. Um, but the, the it does feel it does have that sense. Oh yeah, in a culture that it's intimidating or it's a bit. Yes, you have to probably dress up. Yes, it seems like a lot of effort. And and, and I think I want to understand it, and I'll probably hate it. Mm. And 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 actually, a lot of that. Um, I think artistic directors, dare I say it, to my dear Stuart, he's one of the good eggs, though. Um, I think artistic directors have a lot of responsibility here because. Not many people, if you look around the world at opera, um, opera is lagging far behind other art forms in doing this thing that happens now, which is kind of taking it to the streets. Mm. You know, symphony orchestras have been doing outdoor concerts in parks now for decades. And there's there's a thing called the street fair and you've got art and about in Sydney and you've got photographic exhibitions in warehouses and other art forms are moving with the times and it's still, you know, try and find an opera that's on in a warehouse. Mm. Try and find an opera that's on in a pub. Try and find an opera that's on outdoors. It's pretty damn hard. Mm. And, you know, I blame companies and artistic directors for this. And, of course, it's because they have an element of perfectionism about their work. They want it to all be perfect. It has to look perfect. It has to sound perfect. The singers can't be compromised, my God. And the problem is... You have to take a risk. Mm. You might be your lighting design might be compromised because you've got to do an opera outside, so more people will mm. come. And opera has been slack in this. You did a, there was a pop up this year, wasn't there? Yep, did we you? did. We did a fantastic. Um, well, for Bastille Day, we yeah. did a pop up Les Mis at Central Market. Yeah, okay. And you know what astounded me about that is, I mean, I, I'm I'm not huge with musicals. I, I don't know many musicals either, but oh, my God, like everyone in Central Markets was singing. All these customers are singing and thinking, how do they know all these songs? Obviously, it's Les Mis. It's hugely popular. Um, was but, it well shared? And, oh, it, I think 56,000 people yeah, saw wow. it. A friend of mine said they um, were in Barcelona on a holiday and it popped up on their feed, on their Facebook feed, mm. and they saw it in Barcelona. Because um, that's great when it's sort of it's almost going. This is a very serious art form, but then yeah. maybe not taking it so serious, yeah. but still showing the high quality of it. I think absolutely, that- and we have to do more of that. And look, it is. I I actually can accept that it's difficult for singers. I mean, the voice is the most fragile instrument, you know. And if if you know, it's kind of different from like sort of setting up your drum kit busking on the corner you know it's very different the voice is fragile it's it's hard to hear in different environments Mm. and circumstances but um it's incumbent upon us to make it work Mm. and and i hope that we can do some of that you know we won't we won't win the war because this this has to this has to be a grand scale change over the next hundred years. I mean, we're not going to fix it in Adelaide in in a few years. But um, but what I do like, as I was saying, you know, once upon a time I was obsessed with excellence. I still believe in excellence. I want excellence, but more than that, I want connection. 
that's much, and I learnt that from working in a huge youth connection with connection with people. Yeah, absolute connection. And the thing is, if you have to sacrifice things along the way, and and look, I. I know well, the acoustics that, aren't perfect. That's or the right, or, not perfect or you didn't or, get to put the whole set there. You could only put, or maybe the costumes are a, a, a different because you're not in an environment inside a theatre. And I know I'm not speaking out of turn here when I um, mention my artistic director Stuart because his mantra is the same as mine: more opera for more people. And he says all the time, Yamala, we cut our cloth. We cut our cloth to make it work because it's no good to us having the most niche, elitist, specialist thing in the most beautiful theatre if most of the population didn't see it. And not only didn't they see it, they didn't even know about it. And even if they knew about it, they couldn't give a stuff Mm. about it. No good to us. No good to us at all. I would much rather... um, make do, be creative, be innovative, not sacrifice where we don't have to. But, you know, if I can double, triple, quadruple the numbers of people who see opera in this town, I'll have done something right. Mm. No, it is a fascinating it's, one. I know from, mm. from in the focus groups with people who didn't go to the opera, there was that almost, we go to other arts and there's almost like a no, we're not going to. Mm. And then the, that's what's great about having these discussions with a bunch of people, we kind of go through and then they they start to train. They go, oh, I wouldn't go, it's too expensive. And the, mm. But the price point they were picking was was the price of an, an opera ticket and they, mm. they love music. And, yeah. and then they go, oh, I, and I, I would, I'm actually kind of intrigued about the experience. So the, the, there was one, uh, some suggestions about, into a, they suggested a couple kind of certain pubs that would be there, and I, mm. well, I'd definitely go to that. But yeah. I, so it's just that demystifying Absolutely. of it, and then suddenly there's that click. And, and a lot of the research will do. People are driven the big driver over our sort of our, our fourteen or so years, and 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 my before that um, is that people are driven by two big drivers in life: are your, your family and loved mm. ones, mm. and and new experiences. Mm. And I think it's just that 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 mm. new experience of trying something new mm. and liking. I think. I guess across the arts, when we've done research over the years, it's been people, um, they, they talk about um, don't have enough time or don't have enough money and that's really, it's just a risk mitigation really. They don't want to waste their time. They don't mm. want to waste their money. So they don't mm. want to go along and, and, yep. and, and take a friend and it's, it's yeah. crap. Yeah. Um, they yep. want to go and think it's amazing. So it's just knowing how to... Yep, it's uh, a TV generation. Or a must-have. That's, that, 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 that's yeah. right. And, I mean, now it's, it's true. I mean, this is why, you know... If, TV, it's a TV internet generation. If you're not happy with what, you, what you're doing, you switch channels or you click to That's the next right. YouTube clip. And how can we compete with that? It's, it's a really complex problem. But, and, and it's, yeah, it's never going to be fixed by one thing. But, but what the TV generation has is they have cultural content that comes to them. Mm-hmm. And, so I don't understand why people in the performing arts are still sitting here today going, well, we expect everyone to come to us. Mm. That's gone. Those mm. days are gone. Yeah. That ship has sailed. You know, and I say this all the time and, I mean, and it, it's, look, I'm somebody, I spend a lot of money going to concerts and I love going to concerts. It's still a bloody hassle. Mm. You know, it's still a hassle to, oh, yeah, I've got to get dressed up, I've got to drive into town, I've got to park. Got to, it's a damn hassle. I'd love it if... 
you know, I could walk around the corner to my local park on a Sunday and sit on a blanket with a couple hundred people and there was a concert there for me. Mm. Um, but, of course, that's hard. It costs a lot of money. The logistics are a nightmare. <laughs> There's all sorts From a company of things. Side, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved recently I went to a talk um one of the Lord Mayor's think tanks, fascinating, talking yeah. about, you know, what's wrong with calling Adelaide livable. This is the livability city. Lots of things wrong with that. Um, but one of the great things that um, Ian Scobie, who runs Womadelaide, said, he got up and he said, Womadelaide is the place that you go to meet your neighbour. Yeah. And that's, what, and that's what people like about it. And, again, it doesn't... It almost doesn't matter. Sure, it's great that there's something good on stage. You want to go and hear the great music and whatever, but you want to be part of a community there. Otherwise, you just stay at home and put on a CD. Mm -hmm. So we have to create around opera, and opera's been terrible for this. We haven't created a community. We've created a, an elitist club. Mm -hmm. It's bloody ridiculous. But, but I'd say that older opera goers want other people they go. do, and they, they, want, they, want, they want it do. to be innovative. They want they, they, that's what they, they want it to be different. And supporters of the opera say that all the time. Mm. They say, "I wish, I wish the and they're probably could creative and innovative in their own mind anyway. They Absolutely. want it to be different. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. it's it's just a it's a fascinating look. It's a fascinating challenge, yeah. and I mean, you know, it it does make my life interesting. I have to say yeah. because you you do. Um, but again, going back to what I was saying, it's interesting that you, you know, we have this challenge. People in the arts have this challenge. It's a huge, it's like a huge entrepreneurial business challenge. Um, and there's, but there's also a lot of naysayers. It's it's quite hard to sustain yourself. A lot of naysayers in terms of what? Sorry. In terms of of the arts, performing arts being ambitious. Yeah, okay. it, it, I find this fascinating because I have family and friends who work in all sorts of other industries. If, you know, if you were running a tech startup, um, I mean, nobody would say you're being too ambitious. Nobody would look at your, you know, people would look at your business plan and be like, oh, pat you on the back, you'll be in Silicon Valley in no time. But it fascinates me that in the arts, if you dream big and say, yeah, I want to change the way people perceive opera. I want I want ten ten times more people coming to the opera, whatever, or something like that. People people sort of go, Oh, you're crazy. Is that is that it's bizarre. Is that subscribers? <laughs> is that as attendees? Is that funders? Is that government? Look, I think it's I think it's sort of across the board. Yeah. I think people I think people don't want to think of the arts as um, as a hungry, hard-hitting, ambitious business. Yeah. I think people like it to be sort of pleasant and they like all the niceties that are attached with the performing arts. And um, I must say it's interesting, just in the last few years, I, one of the expressions that I keep using is um, the gloves are off mm. now. And I... I I think about it in terms of what happened maybe in the last decade with the tertiary education sector. Mm. You know, once upon a time, universities stayed in their region. You know, Monash University was where Monash University is and the New England University is where the new, you know, was in Armadale and whatever. And now 
you walk down the streets of Parramatta and you go, oh, there's a building that's the New England University, whatever, the gloves are off. Universities can pop up anywhere, they're online, they can do whatever they want. When are arts companies mm-hmm. going to do it? And um, I say this, and, and look, I must say the best arts companies in Australia, they are doing it. Mm-hmm. The gloves are off because once upon a time, people used to say, um, oh, you're, well, for, for example, people used to say to the Australian Chamber Orchestra, you're a chamber orchestra, you can't run a festival. And lo and behold, they run a festival. Mm-hmm. And I really want that for this company. Yeah. And I think, and I'm assuming that comes from that leadership side from Absolutely. yourself. Absolutely. You, you, and, you and literally have to be a disruptor and, and I have to sit there and say, well, why can't I run a festival? Yeah, and, why and, can't I sell I, I would say that the broader sort of surround would probably like it. Yeah, it's only had almost a fight against sort of yeah, that, 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 that change, preconceived. Really? That's right. I mean, look, we had a conversation um, the other day in the opera company, and I was talking about touring, and you know, of course, oh, and of course, the first thing is everyone's like, oh, well, well, you can't tour. I mean, goodness me, like, and I was like, well, why couldn't we take an opera to Asia? Why couldn't we? Mm. What's that? Where's the law that says we can? Of course, there isn't one. There isn't a law that says you can't do it. It's just a it's just that the arts hasn't decided yeah. to be a dirty business yet. Yeah. And I can't wait till the arts. And look, it's the sort of thing that I always say in business, the pendulum has to swing. Mm. So it'll. what my dream is is that it swings really far and we become a dirty, hungry business yeah. and the world becomes our oyster and then it'll settle back down yeah, kind yeah. of thing. But yeah. we haven't got there yet. Yeah. We haven't and got there. And I know there. we sort of just we interviewed... Um, Jeff and Tina from Patch, and, mm. and they're obviously based in South Australia, but export mm. uh, their mm. theatre across Australia and overseas. And and, and Geordie Brookman, we've, we've spoken mm. to, and and they're doing and fantastic a big change over things. Last four or five years, where they're exporting to London, absolutely, oh, goodness me, and because New Zealand, they, and and it's yep. And 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 the thing that's exciting about that is these great companies, like like those companies you've just mentioned, they're starting to do that. They're doing that, and pretty soon. I hope there'll be a wave, there'll be a mm. cohort. And so in 50 years, it'll be, well, performing arts companies also run commercial businesses and they mm. also do this and they, they. I mean, look, you know, if it was up to me, I'd take over the bloody Elder Conservatorium and run it myself. Mm. You know, mm. Like, mm. I've got some ideas. Yeah. Um, but I think that's an exci- it's an exciting time. For yeah, us, yeah, it's it's yeah. really good. I I think in the um, the work leading into the work we did for SA Opera, um, I think there's a, a opera company I think out of San Francisco or somewhere in the US, US mm, who mm. Um, did a lot of design thinking and sort of was quite innovative. Yeah, was that San yep. Francisco? Yes, that? I think it was San Fran. Yeah, and this Do you is, kind of hear about the, it's this is what we look in many ways. It's it's a hard time to be in the arts, but it's kind of the best time mm. to be in the arts as well. Because there's a bit of a burning deck. And yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a palpable sense of, um, you know, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of funding stress, there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of uncertainty, but out of those times... Something will come. We're all under pressure Mm. and um, people are already starting to make bold moves. 
And I think, um, you know, it's hard in opera, again, because it's a complex and costly art form, but I hope that Stuart, Stuart and I have enough kind of a bizarre combination of deep love of the performing arts and irreverence as well. You know, you can't take yourself too seriously because if you take yourself too seriously, you're too scared to fail. I mean, I say to Stuart, let's just make a hundred screw ups along the way, mm. but we'll get there. But that's, and I think that's been an interesting one. Part of the reason why I've had a few of these um, episodes to, to end um, 2018 being focused on the arts is mm. um, people don't often understand the arts, but our observation, being involved with a couple of different companies for a number of years, is it's sort of in its very DNA is innovative and, yep. and change yep. and, and yep. entrepreneurial, as you said, but it's not seen as that. It's no. just seen as being. It's not seen as being exporting or not seen no. as being innovative. I guess where I look at it. It's not seen it, as being hungry. No, that's It's right. always perceived as being pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, the arts does this because the arts does that. Mm. Um, but I guess that's where it's interesting with a company, say, like um, like State Opera, South Australia, is that there's a sense of vulnerability and a need mm. to change and evolve and a yes. desire to do that as well. But that does create, as I said before, that that, that burning platform that, we want to change. We also yep. need to change. Yep, yep. No, that's and, right. And that kind of comes back to going, well, we that, have that, to change. That's and the kind change, of organisation you like to be part of. Absolutely. So. And change is, um, you know, I won't lie. I mean, this, this, my first nine months at this company has been incredibly hard. And it is mostly because it's been all about change. Mm-hmm. And change, especially when it intersects with human nature, is. I mean, I can only use the word horrific. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. I mean, I was reading something, um, I was reading Machiavelli the other day, you know, and Machiavelli said change is always the hardest thing because there's a whole set of people who did well under the former regime and even your supporters for change don't know how well they'll do under the new regime. Yeah. You never have, when you're trying to instigate change, you never have 100% backing from either camp, from your detractors mm-hmm. or your supporters. Mm-hmm. No one really wants it because there's uncertainty. And we've we've had a, a kind of crazy year of change at State Opera and um, I've learnt a lot about human nature actually. And I've learnt that um, you can, you actually, it's it's actually quite difficult to convince somebody um, of what's coming. I've had a lot of circumstances where I've talked to people and I've said, this is what's going to happen. And then this is going to happen after that. And it's fascinating to me that people don't believe you. Because because when people are faced with uncertainty, they revert back to their own biography. Mm. And it's it's human nature. Fascinating, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I love the challenge of change, but I'd never say that it isn't, it's like, complex. the worst thing to do ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but, but it's an interesting one that we talk so much in society and entrepreneurship and... Mm government and business and wherever else mm. about innovation and the importance of innovation but then 
like some of the work that, that we do, particularly in, say, a government organisation or big organisations, it's change fatigue and it's people go, yeah. oh, not change still, can't we? Do we have to keep changing? Or there's right. that desire for innovation but not liking different. Mm. And we've probably got a bigger pressure coming on about risk mitigation of going, we don't want to... Yep. change and it goes worse that's right and so if we're on a, right. like that burning deck means that you need to make a change but if you change and it gets worse then that's mm. that's yeah sometimes a bit it's, of a scary scenario so. and it, as you said it's very draining on people because by and large we're creatures of habit mm. i mean we we all like our coffee the same way in the morning and we like we like to know which way we walk to work and all of those things it's it's interesting to see what happens to people when um change is imposed on them and and look i'm i'm a bit of a sucker for a company that needs needs work Mm. i've i've got i've maybe sadly developed a reputation for myself like that (laughs) um but i yeah i like to think that um, by sort of showing people that you can sort of dive in, dive in deep, um, I like to think that people would, would kind of look at me as a leader and go, wow, she's, she's putting it all on the line for this. So you, you kind of, you as a leader... Uh, willing to, to, to be brave is, is important. Yeah, so and your team feel willing to be brave? That's yeah. what I hope. That's what I hope. Yeah. It doesn't always work, believe you me. Um, but, look, it's, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I did have – I had a conversation with a friend of mine in Sydney the other day and she said, we're still talking about how we can't believe you moved to South Australia for the <laughs> opera company. What were you thinking? And I said, oh, well, I was thinking it would be fun. Um, and it is fun. That's the thing. And I suppose we have to remind ourselves. Challengingly fun. Challengingly fun. And, and, as I was saying before, reminding everybody that – you know, we're not saving lives. I mean, it's just the performing arts, for God's sake. Mm. You know, if the curtain goes up 30 seconds late, did anybody die? No. Yeah. You know, it is fun. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to come back to a point that's building on that, but I'm going to ask about your, your opening night last night, mm. The Merry Widow. Crazy that, times. Yeah. Crazy so times. open for how long? And Well, we've got um, – we had the first night of five performances. Yeah. Um, so we've got – Tonight, Friday the 30th, Saturday the 1st of December and then Tuesday and Thursday next week. Yeah. It's um, it's super funny. My husband, I, my husband was sitting with me and he said, it feels very Monty Python-esque. There's a, there's a bit of um, Mel Brooks about it. It's very funny. Um, lots of dancing. And look, the thing that I love about it, which, you know... <sighs> You know, I'm not even from South Australia. I'm I'm born and bred in Sydney, um, but I love, love, love how this production showcases South Australians. Not least, um, not least of which is the fabulous Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. I love that we get to show them up to show another brilliant aspect of what that orchestra can does. And I mean, I say this to people all over Adelaide because I, I, I'm on the Helpman Classical and Opera Award panel. I listen to a lot of symphony orchestras all around the country all the time 
and we are lucky here. We are so lucky. These musicians are fantastic. You know, they can polish off Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 8 and they can also play kind of the luscious, glorious old Hollywood music from Merry Widow. Um, they, they're very accomplished. And the cast is full of South Australians. So it, it's, you know, showcasing talent. It's fun. It's, I mean, you know, everybody's, everybody's loving it. It's, um, it's uh, quite stressful, I'll say. One of the one of the funny, you know, um, trivia stressful bits of it is that the show, including the intervals, there's two intervals, runs for two hours and fifty four minutes. Once we hit three hours and one minute, we're into overtime for everyone. So I literally sit there white knuckled, <laughs> counting minutes. Because, as many people know, um, opera is a cast of thousands. You've got your orchestra, you've got your full orchestra in the pit, you've got dancers, chorus, principals, singers galore. That's just on stage. Backstage, dressers, tech people, sound people, a whole stage management team, mechanists, lighting. So literally there's hundreds and hundreds of people mm. running around, payroll off the charts, headache for me, um, and 15 minutes of overtime is me crying in the office the next day <laughs> wondering how I'm going to write this report to the board. So it's all in the timing. Yeah, it's all in the timing. Wow. And but that, it is down to a hair, a hair it is of time, it yeah. literally is like a couple more minutes and we're slightly screwed yeah, 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 wow. <laughs> but look this is the fun of it you know there's got to be tension and stress and all of these sorts of things but is that and i think that's an interesting one in the once again it's sort of it's been interesting in these interviews of we talk about innovation again and change and but the arts is it's, it's, it's bloody hard work mm. and it's bloody hard work and there's a business around it and it yep. employs people and yep but it's well, not it's not an easy you don't just roll it out and there's a, a no, performance it's, it's that discipline and practice and high stress long hours um i mean i i don't know anybody who works as hard as people in the performing arts really it's where everybody is on call all the time. I mean, I could call anybody in my team at 2am, they would answer the phone. I mean, it's there's no nine to five. You can't be that sort of person and do well in the arts. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely the stress because, because people are paying for an experience mm. and it's ephemeral. So it's not like, oh, I bought a packet of Tim Tams, I took it, took it home and... I didn't like them and I can go back to the shop and get another one, it's gone. Mm. The, the experience is gone. So it has to be right on the night. <laughs> and that kind of stress um, is very hard to handle over a long period of time. I mean, there's a there's a high instance of burnout in the arts across all, across performers, backstage, administrative um, mm-hmm. roles high instance of burnout um and so so and i actually i i I must say i think about that quite a lot i take that responsibility i wear that responsibility very heavily on my shoulders because i know myself Mm. and i am somebody who um 
I kind of, in a sick, sad way, you know, I love the broken arts, but I, I like to see people at the desk at midnight. Um, I used to have a, a boss at the Opera House who's now the artistic director of the Auckland Festival, Jonathan Bielski, amazing man. Um, and he once said to me, you know, if you're not at your desk at midnight crying, you're not doing your job properly. <laughs> and there's a sense of that in the arts. Yeah. And I and kind that, of, does that come with a joy as well, the hard work that you put into course, it? The show course. went on and it went off successfully. Of and Look, it's work hard. The reviews come in and they, they were good. Work hard, play hard. Yeah. That's and, what and I wonder, is. I've always sort of liked the line that says, if you love what you do, you never work a day of your life, which is a load of bullshit. Of course. Because you do work. And, All the time. And it means that if you didn't love what you do, you wouldn't actually put up with the crap. That's is, right. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Love what you do. Love what you do for work, work 24 hours a day. That's, that's what that phrase actually yeah. should but be. But if you hated it, you'd go, I'm not going to put up with this. this no, rubbish. that's right. And and that's why, look, again, if you're somebody that loves working in the performing arts, you find your tribe in one second because mm. nobody would do it if they didn't mm. love it. I mean... And other, a bit like the, the children in uh, the Youth Symphony Orchestra yeah. about, they go, oh, I found my tribe, they get it. That's you, right. You find other people that get it. You go above and beyond. You find the people, you know, and I mean the other thing is is that you become, because of the way it works, this this industry, this kind of, you know, in many ways a kind of sick, enmeshed, codependent industry, um, interwoven, you, you find people that you will kind of live and die for and I always say um, to my team and to any team I manage, you will never feel as obligated to your workplace as you will to your work colleague. And so what happens is you get the shits with the job. You know, it's exhausting, it's hard, you're tired, you whatever. Get the shits with the job. But if your colleague rings you up and says oh, my God, I'm sick, can you bump in this show at 6am for me? I need you to pick up the signage for blah, blah, blah. You'll do it. Mm. You do it for that colleague. You do it for that person. And you see this all through the arts. This is classic arts Those relationships worker. you've established. And- Absolutely. And, I mean, I've I've been here for nine months. I've employed a whole new team. And I do that thing that, you know, the textbook tells you not to do, but I don't care anymore. Um, I'm a values-based employer. Um, I mistakenly think that I could teach anyone anything technical that they need to know. And I employ, you know, it's this terrible thing. You employ people who reflect yourself back (laughs) back to you um, and give you what you want to hear. So I love employing on a values-based premise. And then, of course, you get all those people that you know, they're working till midnight and they're all this kind of yeah. stuff. I'm not I'm not convinced it's healthy. You know, I'm smart enough to know that there's a textbook that says don't do that for a reason. Um, but while it lasts, it's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> so if we jump two years into the future and uh, everything lines up and you've got your the company is doing all the things you want to do in an innovative way or in a clever way or a different way or even in a in a traditional way. What what what, what does that look like? Well Your stakeholders well, are all kind well, of supporting I'll tell you. What and... that looks like is what that looks like is me is me watching from afar. Yeah. Because I'm just just me personally, I'm not looking to make my bed and lie in it. I'm 
I never do a job um, because I want to set myself up and Mm -hmm. I'm not looking for longevity and I don't want, I don't need to make my mark. My 100% favourite thing to do and whenever, and I, I have done this actually quite a lot and I get the biggest buzz of anything from it, I love to find good people and put them in the right jobs and let them shine. And it, I mean, if you ask me, like, what's your favourite saying, it's you can't get a duck and quack yourself. Mm. Really, it's the most satisfying thing. And um, even recently I was a referee for two young women that I've watched in Sydney and I've worked with, um, two young women who are kind of in their mid-20s, and they both got role. One got a role at the Opera House and one got a role at Sydney Dance Company. And I was referees for both of them. And I, I, it was basically the happiest moment of my year when these women got their job. I mean, when I left Sydney Youth Orchestras, the, my two IC that I had brought in, another brilliant young woman, um, with two young kids who said to me, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I said, by God, you can do it. You're the next general manager of this company. I petitioned my board that when I left, she would be put in my place. And thankfully, the board listened to me. And of course, these, of course, you know what, you know what people do, which is the most amazing thing. They rise to the occasion. They, they become impressive. Mm-hmm. They step into the role that's mm-hmm. there in front of them. And, um, I, I must say, I've got a real, um, nothing makes me more excited than finding a young, talented female and putting her in a position where she can go to the top. And mm. I'll, I guarantee I'll be doing that at State Opera. Yeah. Um, and if I, if I could do that another dozen times in my career or even half like a dozen times. Building a great time, team, building that, having it so op- the, the pathway, team will build a great company. Pathway yeah. opportunities for young women to lead, nothing makes me happier. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a has-been. I want to see someone who's 30 years old running a company because um, I've never been let down. by Those people can, I mean, the, the young woman, um, I'm her biggest fan who's just taken a job as the classical music producer at the Opera House. She's 26 years old. She can run rings around me. I love her to death. I think she's a superstar. Um, you know, and one day I hope I'm begging her for a job. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope yeah. I yeah. It's It's the best feeling. So, yeah, in two years' time, if and, – and, you know, let's uh, – it's a big if because this, this baby's going to be a hard thing to shape. Mm. The state opera is not a quick fix, let me tell you. And um, – I certainly want to I'm I'm like a total commitment person like I never do anything unless you know I've sold my soul to this thing my husband hates this you know he's like can't you just do things normally like I'm like no <laughs> so you know I've sold my soul to the devil that is the state opera company of South Australia but yeah my dream would be that in however many years 2 3 5 seven, whatever it is when it's humming I'm actually looking at it from afar. I don't, I don't need to stay when it's humming. I'm I'm not that person. I'm not. Does a, humming mean sort of audiences or the nature of shows, or does it I mean think the business, is that about engagement? I think and connection? I think when the business is humming, okay, all of the those things. Side come, of the, the, the yeah, because when the business is humming, you've got you know the 
the repertoire works, the, the ticketing works, the system works, and all of those other good things, audiences, that, ha- that comes. So, again, it comes back to a business model it's, and a business. It's totally business. about the business. It's yeah. absolutely about the business. There's no point having, um, you know, and, and, and this, has, this has happened, having a broken business company, a broken business model, um, trying to put on a good show doesn't work mm-hmm. just doesn't work the the center has to hum yeah. and then all the other stuff comes easily yeah. and and of course it's um when the business hums um you know you engender a sense of uh confidence you need you need your board to feel confident that they, they're not looking at the books going what the hell happened there they're going business is working everything Books are good, sales are good, staff are happy. You can, you know, you can tell um, because I've done this quite a few times now. Um, my first question when I'm considering taking on a taking on a kind of challenging company, my the first thing I look at is the leave balance, leave balance of employees. How many sick days did that person take? How, what, what's your What's your sick leave quota? What's the leave balance? You can tell within five minutes how broken a company is. Like that's all you need. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your staff turnover? Oh, right. You know, you, and then you go into the books and yeah. then all the stories come out. I, looking at the ticketing and the that's the last. I can already tell if something's working or not from, you know, oh, so-and-so had 20 sick days last year. I'm like, uh-huh. You're broken. Okay. You're broken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, the, but the, but this stuff—it's all interesting. And mm. it, look, that—that's not particular to the arts. That's interest. That's fascinating mm-hmm. in every business. Mm-hmm. That's about um, that's about shaping companies that people want to be in. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's that culture again, isn't it? Really, those culture, relations to that culture and culture change. Um, you know, look, it's it is it's. Um, it could be seen as too involved, you know. I mean, sometimes sometimes it is right just to have a job to pay your bills. That is absolutely valid. It's right. Um, I'm not like that and I never employ anyone like that. Yeah. <laughs> so don't come and work for me if you're one of those people. Um, but, I look, I still think that's valid at, to, to, have, to do it. But, again, that's way. like earlier on you said... Some people like um, orchestral music, and other, other people don't. Yeah. Sort of, some people like to work like that. And exactly, so horses for courses. Horses, that's, right. Horses, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It keeps it. It keeps. Um, it certainly keeps me on my toes. But it is definitely. I mean, I spend a lot more time thinking about the people and the culture and the business than I do about the shows and the ticketing and whatever because I. I know. I mean, look, Merry Widow, for example, is going to be – it is successful and it's going to be incredibly successful for us. And, um, you know, yes, it's a great show, but I think it's successful because of what we've got, what we've got going on mm. inside our business right now. You know, we've got people who are firing. They, they, there's a palpable excitement. I mean, you know, I was driving into work this morning – and um, one of my marketing team called me, who has a day off today. She's not working today. 
called me first thing in the morning and like, oh my God, did you see the Facebook post about this? And I, I saw this, my education coordinator, who is not working today, she's part-time, she doesn't work on Fridays, said, oh, I've been talking to the school that we got in for the dress rehearsal and they were saying this, this, this. And it's not about making people work 24-7. It's about people who are so invested and satisfied by what they're doing that they're excited about it 24-7. Mm. Um, that's they how don't I, check out when it's... Yeah. Th- yeah, there's no checking out. There's no, and that's why I don't, um, much to my husband's horror, and I must say he and I are poles apart. He's a lawyer, okay, so he and I are poles apart in this. I don't believe in work-life balance. I have no concept of work-life <laughs> balance. Um, I It doesn't bother me at all to be reading articles about opera at 2am or talking to friends in the arts all weekend or whatever or, or writing board papers on a Sunday afternoon. I couldn't care less, you know. And people always say this stuff to me like, oh, you've got to train your board not to email you on the weekend. And I'm like, honestly... If I want to email them, I email them so they can email me. I couldn't, I honestly just, it's just wasted energy to care about that control. I'm just, I just want it to seep through my whole being. Mm. Um, And I'm very fortunate. It's quite, this is quite bizarre actually, that um, Stuart Maunder, my AD, he and I did not know each other before we took these jobs we're exactly the same. Mm. We're literally exactly the same. He, we, we text each other at 2am about opera ideas and stuff. We, we're kind of crazy people. It's a bit like when you hear about people who are method actors that they have to become the character yeah. that you become Oh, the yeah, company. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, that's us. That's us to a T. We're like that all the time. Um, so, but I sort of hope that um, I don't really mind if it doesn't, mean anything to anyone else because I'm not silly enough to think that, you know, when I'm lying on my deathbed when I'm 85, I'm really not going to be thinking about the job I had 40 years ago. Oh, you know, when I worked at the opera, we all know, you know, we're all at a point in our lives, everyone knows that when you're lying on your deathbed, you're going to be thinking about your relationships and the people that are around you, people that care about you. Um, so I'm not silly enough to sort of believe that this is, you know, um, my whole life. But I love it. I love things that at the point I am in my life that they take over my whole life. Yeah. So, How old are your children? You said you've got one at Yeah, I've got who's... three daughters at yeah. university yeah. who are hilarious, yeah. I must say. You know, my girls, when I said to my girls at the end of last year, what would you girls say if I thought about taking a job in Adelaide? And they all looked at me and just said, why are you talking to us about your life? Like, we don't even care. You know, they're hilarious. So they are, um, one's almost 19, 19 a minute, 21 and 22. And um, they're all at university doing amazing things and they're super talented. And they're like um, a lot of young people today. They are, they're, what do I, what do I call, they're, they're dry. You know, they're sarcastic. They're they're kind of their their reality TV. They're bitter. They're funny. They, you know, my girls say things to me like, "Ugh, God, as if we're having kids. We don't have." <laughs> and that my girls say, "We don't have time to have children. They don't have time." And I say to them, "Yeah, I didn't have time either. 
I still bloody well had you. Um, no, but I like talking to them now. You know, now that you find that now they're out of teenage years, that you've got that. Oh yeah, you're a bit more of a mentor and a guide. Absolutely, and it's very interesting to be tapped into the to. I mean, you know, young people that age, God knows what they do. Um, Well, I know what they do. They all stay up till three a.m. and they sleep till midday. Um, But it's interesting to tap into the way they think, and not much is really, really important to that younger generation. And it, But it's like that thing that we read about now. Um, information, knowledge, is no, longer, is no longer valuable because you can just look it up. You can look up anything on Google. Nobody cares that you wrote your thesis 20 years ago on, on whatever. And young people, by and large, they don't care about any of that. Everything is a titbit for their entertainment. Everything's passing. Everything's ephemeral for them. Um, and it's just quite interesting the way um, – and I, t- I talk to my daughters and a lot of their friends and they all think like this. They, And it, it, I don't think it's bad at all. I think um, it's fascinating actually. You know, and we come along with all of our – you know, we're like our parents – we have a lot of weighty, holier-than-thou things that we think are very, very important. You know, oh, you must read Catcher in the Rye. Oh, my goodness, you don't know Shakespeare. You know, it's all so important. And, of course, to these people, like, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just Google what that, what, what's Romeo and Juliet? Oh, yeah, I'll just Google that. Yeah, yeah, I read that in 10 seconds, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's it's a different world. It's a really different so world. So we started off with... You as a young girl in the Blue Mountains with six siblings, mm. the oldest of them, mm. and now you've got three daughters. I've got two daughters myself. What, what's when your daughters listen to your advice? What's your advice that you might give them about how mm. they might have a successful life or career? Mm. And mm. You said it's quite different now to what it was. Mm. Mm. But what, what advice do you or would you give them? Um, well, I mean. Uh, you know, let's not be foolish enough to think that they listen to anything <laughs> that I say because, of course, they don't. Um, it's it's quite touching. They, when they say they don't. I know. They it's, it's actually do. quite moving do. and touching when they ring you and they, they say something to me like, oh, Mum, do you think those shoes go with this dress or something? You know, and I just go, oh, darling. Um, but, look, the, the thing that I do say to them and I... I do think they do this, um, is I say, my husband and I say this all the time, we say pour it in, just pour everything you've got physically, mentally, everything you've got in your soul, whatever you do, pour it in, pour it in. And, um, you know, I mean, I... I there's one bit of amazing advice I once got. My husband is a family law specialist. He spends a lot of time working on horrific cases and um, he works a lot with a man who is the child representative in the family law court of the New South Wales Family Law Court in Sydney. Um, he's the, the special representative for children. And I was talking to this man once when, you know, we had the horror teenage daughter years. As it, you, I'm sure you, mm-hmm. everybody's had them. And he said 
there's only one thing you can do. And he said, pour in the love. Pour it in. And it's the same advice I give to my daughters and it's the same advice I give to my team and it's the same thing I do. Nothing is any good if it's half-assed. And it doesn't matter even if you're doing the wrong thing. It doesn't matter if you're with the wrong guy. Have the best sex you've ever had (laughs) with the wrong guy. It doesn't matter if you've given it everything. Okay, it wasn't the job for you, but by God, I gave it 100% and no one will ever say I didn't. You know, and um, that's what I say to my girls. I mean, my eldest daughter started her first job this week, started her first real proper job. She graduated from engineering at Sydney University. Um, and I, same advice, I say, you just, everything, you do your work because nobody can ever take that away from mm. you. You know, people might, might not like the colour of your yeah, hair. Yeah, look back and go, I should have tried harder. Yeah, but, but pe- you know, people won't like the colour of your hair. People won't like... But nobody will ever say you didn't give it everything. And that's, that's kind of how I think. You know, people might not agree with what I think about opera or the arts or whatever, but nobody will ever say Yamala's lazy or Yamala doesn't give it everything, nobody, because um, because I'm the last person at my desk because I'm that, that kind of stupid idiot. But, yeah, so that's that's the advice yeah, I just give to anyone. Exactly. And, and look, you, you know that any one of us, any person who listens to this who's ever had any satisfaction with anything, mm. whether it was the game of tennis they played on the weekend or the, the novel they wrote... It's all about 100% or nothing. That's right. It yeah. doesn't mean you're not going to have meltdown moments. Or... Oh, and it's not going to mean that it wasn't a mistake. I mean, I look back on things that I did and I go, ugh, what the hell did I do that for? At least I gave it everything, you know, but it, it was stupid in the end. I mean, yeah, oh, that may be what I'm doing now, but whatever, <laughs> you know. So best way to find you, I'm assuming, just through State Opera? Oh, yes, I'm there all the time. Are you a social <laughs> media person? Are you on I am. I, I am. People can... People can, I'm on, um, I'm big on Instagram, like all middle-aged people. You know, that's what my <laughs> daughters say to me. Only people over the age of 40 are on Facebook and Instagram now. Yeah. None of my kids are on I it. I try to understand my kids' Snapchat, but it's, I can't get my mind. Oh, yeah, my, but my girls are even off that now. Like, they're just like all of this stuff they think is for lame old people. Is who, that right? Because I've heard a few people say that lately. Yeah. About, or, they're just going, no. Nah, my off. girls won't go near it. Are they they're connecting? Like, Do you think they're connecting more? No, no, <laughs> no, no. Sadly, and I, I think this is again the scourge of young people. I don't know if you've had this experience, but um, yeah, my girls and a lot of their friends, they've got the kind of lone wolves. They don't have a lot of good close friendships. You know, this is the internet generation. They, they don't have good deep conversations with people. They don't know how to. Their lives are about texting and watching YouTube and. It's, and my, my girls say this. They say it's hard to make friends. I mean, my eldest daughter, who's just done years of engineering at Sydney Uni, and I say, where are all your friends from uni? She's like, Mum, there are 50,000 people at Sydney Uni. Only about 10 of them have English as a first language. You know, and she said, I mean, and it's there's nothing wrong with that, but what she's saying is it's hard. 
It's really it's hard. Connect, is it? Super hard. Isn't My girls, and, and I've got one daughter at, who's just finished Sydney Uni, one daughter at ANU in Canberra and one at UTS, and they all say the same thing. It is... We, and we go back to how do you find your tribe? How do you find those people? And often it takes, um, you know, you've got to dig deep and find that weird thing that you personally really love, whether it be opera or whether it be playing the French horn, or whether it be, and you've got to find those people. And it's really hard. You're not going to find them in a sea of 50,000 people at university. You find them in a, in a little pocket somewhere. Um, but I think our lives are getting harder and harder like that. Mm. It's hard for it's hard for grown ups as well. The definition of community is it's is so sometimes important. About finding mm. people Find. who have got the same interests, your yep. tribe. Yeah, it's hard for grown ups. I mean, yeah. I say this to my husband all the time. I say we don't have any friends. You know, it is I've been writing a blog today, which hopefully will be out by the time um, this, this goes to air. But it's about that the importance of relationships. Mm. That, a lot of organisations are saying you, you can't have relationships mm. because of procurement reasons or trust reasons or, or whatever it might be. And then, but social isolation is becoming a really yeah. big, um, and really big issue. And sort of going, how do we actually kind of solve that? And that's that, that, very that, difficult. That, that that sort of that challenge there of finding connection. Yeah, and, very difficult because if you often at work is where you find a like. You find the person mm. who's doing the same thing that you are. You know, That's right. It, it is really hard. So I, I do think social social isolation is a big thing, also for the younger generation. I really do. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, of all the many, many twenty year old types that I know, and and I, I must say, I know a lot of them, especially from my time at Sydney Youth Orchestras. Mm. Um, we went up to 24, so I spent a lot of time with people in that age group. And it's hard and it's lonely and there's a lot of pressure mm. and there's this horrendous pressure to be successful in a stereotypical successful way, you know. And it's almost normalised that, that we that on social media that everybody, it almost sort of seems like everybody is successful. Yeah, everybody is perfect. But oh, they're not. it's and awful. That's a hard one. I yeah, know that is awful. We've done, yeah, we've done some projects on health and well-being with most oh, young people, and it's that. Awful. I think a lot of that comes from just seeing that the mm. normal is to be highly successful and it's horrific, isn't and, it? And, and, and it's like we have, where when when we were younger, you, you mm. didn't see that, so mm. you, you just probably compared yourself to your parents mm. or mm. or your circle, and mm. that's probably easy compared to. Com- you see, every you, you compare yourself against Mark Zuckerberg or oh. or anyone else that sort of. Yeah, achieving yeah. glory rather than mm. crashing and burning mm. or whatever mm. it might be. It makes life very difficult. Mm. There we go. On that, <laughs> on that, on that, <laughs> on that, on that I, I feel like sad. going to the musical. No, no. It's, no, no. <laughs> what's something happy we can feel? What, what, what's what's what? Well, what are you what are, what are you doing on the weekend? What am what's, I doing? What, I t- what, well, I'll tell you something. Like, I t- I'll tell you something that's happy, which is actually lovely, is because my my husband and I do this ridiculous tag team long distance love affair between Sydney and Adelaide and we alternate weeks back and forth which actually you know when you've been married for as long as I have 26 years the ladies who listen to your podcast will know that it's not that bad because you know you have a few peaceful beautiful nights in clean beautiful sheets and you know the toilet seats down and all of that sort of thing it's actually lovely but the interesting that's happening to interesting thing that's happening to us 
is when I go home to Sydney for the weekend, it's a horrendous weekend because I march around the house yelling that everything's a pigsty and it's all gone to the dogs since I left. When my husband comes to Adelaide, because Adelaide is one of those cities, it's like a second honeymoon because Adelaide is Adelaide. So we, we, we wake up on a Saturday morning and we decide which winery we'll go to for lunch and then maybe we'll catch a concert in the evening and maybe we'll go for a walk on the beach on Sunday. And it's this bizarre, luxurious, beautiful second honeymoon for old people. So that nice rhythm about the city. Yeah. Oh, my God, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's interesting to me that um, you meet a lot of people who get all offended yeah. if you call Adelaide a big country town, you know, because people like to think that Adelaide's a city, you know, or this is a big city. Um, but I must say I think of it, I love the things that, remind you of a big country town in Adelaide. I feel like that's the precious stuff, you know, the good food, the good wine, the accessibility, people being friendly. I mean, one of my daughters was here a month or so ago and we were shopping, we were doing grocery shopping and I accidentally bumped my trolley into someone and this woman turned around and she apologised to me for being in my way. <laughs> and my daughter said, Mum, if we were in Sydney and that had happened, that woman would have punched you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but we're in Adelaide and people are lovely. They really are. It's the best. It's literally the best. That's a, that's a good <laughs> spot to stop. Thank you yeah. so much. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Jason here to say goodbye until next time. I would love any thoughts or comments you might have on today's show. Message me via Twitter or other social media at Jason Dunstone. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails on everything human-centered, customer-focused, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen and Christy Anthony, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list where you can also find more information on each episode of Real People. Please subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, please leave a review. If you would like to learn more about Square Holes, the agency I founded in 2004 to conduct and publish customised exploratory research on key markets and population segments, please visit squareholes.com or via LinkedIn or other social media. Square Holes is a proud sponsor of the arts, including but not limited to the State Theatre Company of South Australia and the Adelaide Film Festival. We've been research sponsors for more than a decade for those two and we're involved in a number of other companies. If you're a business or government leader, please consider getting involved and sponsoring the arts. I've certainly gained a huge amount personally from my involvement with Patch Theatre and Square Holes' arts partnerships are some of the most rewarding relationships we've had. For example, our small role in the Adelaide Film Festival has helped or played a small part in producing 43 feature-length films, 30 short films and 13 cross-platform art and moving image projects. Uh, and it is great to uh, take our partners and, and team members along to different arts experience and just sort of to, uh, to encourage our team members and our clients to to experience different cultures through the arts or think differently and even just that whole 
what does it take to produce a film or a play and raising money. So just the being involved in those companies has been so um, so rewarding, but probably surprisingly so when we first became involved in 2008, 2009 with State Theatre and then the Film Festival. I encourage you to get out and explore your local arts and festivals. The arts are a critical part of any strong, creative, positive culture around the world. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Uru. Uh-huh.